CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how to boost your energy, focus, and happiness in five minutes or less using a dead simple strategy that anyone can apply right now. We explore the power of self-knowledge and why it's one of the cornerstones of success in any area of life. And we uncover several powerfully uncomfortable questions that you can ask yourself to be happier, healthier, and more productive with our guest, Gretchen Rubin. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. 
I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed why it's so important to study and understand psychology if you want to master any aspect of life. We looked at the evolutionary science behind how your brain can often play tricks on you. We shared a simple and impactful model from psychology for dealing with stressful and tough situations, and we discussed the dangerous illusion of the quest for certainty and how you should actively embrace taking risks in your life with our guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby. If you want to stop your brain from playing tricks on you, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Gretchen. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, and The Four Tendencies. And her latest book is Outer Order, Inner Calm. She's appeared on TV outlets such as The Today Show, Oprah's Super Soul Sunday Morning, and more. She's also appeared in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and many other outlets. Gretchen, welcome to The Science of Success. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today and and dig into this topic because I think it's really fascinating. So to start out, you, you've done a tremendous amount of work, tremendous amount of research. There's, there's a million things we could dig into in this conversation, but the topic that has captured your attention recently is this idea of order. And so I wanted to begin with why has order become something and what maybe let's start with what is order and why has it become for somebody who spent so much time studying happiness and habits and behaviors, why has order come to the forefront for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have been writing about happiness and good habits and human nature for a long time. And something that has surprised me is there's like a disproportionate charge around the subject of outer order. I mean, if I would ask people if they make their bed, like an audience would laugh and start chattering and people, a friend of mine said, you know, I finally cleaned up my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I was like, I know how that feels. It's, but it doesn't really make sense because you think, well, in the context of a happy, productive life, something like a crowded coat closet or a messy desk is trivial. And yet over and over, people reported to me, and I certainly feel this way myself, that when we get control over the stuff in our lives, we often feel more in control of our lives generally. If it's an illusion, it's a helpful illusion. And it's not just like a sense of calm, but there's also a sense of focus, a sense of energy, you know, and even a sense of possibility. There's something about dealing with these little challenges of creating outer order that makes us feel more able to tackle big challenges. And I just always thought it seemed kind of disproportionate. Like, why was everybody getting such a bang for their buck in this area? So I decided, you know, I, instead of writing about something huge like habits, I want to go like shine a spotlight on something small, but that seems to like be punching above its weight in terms of like value, which is creating outer order. That's such a great approach. I love the 80-20 perspective on what's something simple, very easy to do, and yet has an outsized approach in terms of shaping the outcomes in our lives. Well, you know, research shows that, about, that American adults spend about 55 minutes a day looking for misplaced items. Imagine what you could do with 55 minutes a day. And so one of the kind of clearest benefits of outer order is that it is, it's easier to find things. It's easier to put things away. You don't buy duplicates of something because you can't find, you know, you, you, you have to buy a new tape measure because you can't find the tape measure that you know you have somewhere. 
And so, yeah, I mean, it, it really can, can yield very big benefits and very quickly, you know, yeah, there's a lot of instant gratification to it. It's not like things that have, that are more abstract or that have a longer timeline. This is something that you, you can feel better, like soon, you can get this boost quick. And that's been my own experience as well. I sometimes will almost, whenever I have a, a project to clean something up or whether it's straighten up my desk or throw things out or clean up a, an old closet or drawer that's been full of junk, I sometimes actually save those activities and say, all right, when I'm going to need a big productivity boost, I know that I need to go clean out this drawer. And then I spend 15 minutes doing that. And then I'm they get in the flow, get in the zone. And then I go crush out a bunch of productivity for the next couple hours. And it's amazing. I've had I've definitely had that personal experience of getting that boost from some very simple act of, of creating order in your environment. I do exactly the same thing. And I actually beg my friends to let me come over and help them clear their clutter because it's like you get all that exhilaration, but none of the emotional demand that comes from when it's your own things. And I really, I get a huge charge from it. And I agree. I will do the same thing. Sometimes it, it really can be a way to get get yourself that energy if you know that you need a little bit of it. It's funny. I even just talking about this, I'm looking around stuff in my office and have the urge to go get up and rip some stuff off the walls and clean up and throw some things away. So I'm having to fight that tendency just to stay focused on the interview. Well, you know, that was my hope for the book. The, the book is written in this way where it's like lots of ideas written in these like very kind of bite-sized pieces because I wanted something that like you just kind of be so easily accessible. I was like, this is a book, Outer Order, Inner Calm. This has to be like extremely streamlined. But also it's like a psych-up book. It's a book that's meant to get you, you know, you sort of get a third of the way through it and then you throw it over your shoulder and go running to the medicine cabinet or you go running to your filing cabinet because you, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait anymore. I have to start clearing clutter. After I finished recording the audiobook. The next day, my director emailed me like a before and after of her office because she got so fired up from talking about it that then she spent the rest of the day cleaning out her office. So it's really my hope that th this is just to get you like full of ideas and like the sense of possibility to like, this is, this is going to feel great. Let me, let me go do this right now. I'm going to feel great. And it's going to be really pay off for me in the future in terms of my focus and my energy and my calm. I love the focus on keeping it just so simple and so easy and so actionable. Anybody listening right now can, in five minutes, create a change in their state and, as you said, in their energy and their focus simply by cleaning something up. Well, and one of, one of the most popular ideas that I talk about is the one-minute rule. And this is the idea that anything that you can do in less than a minute, you do without delay. So if you can hang up your code instead of tossing it over a chair, if you can print out a document and put it in the correct folder, anything you can do in less than a minute just go ahead and do it. And this means that you don't have to like set aside any time. Some people are so busy. They're like, I don't have the time. And if I did have the time, that's not how I would spend the time. This is stuff you just do as part of your ordinary day. And yet very quickly, if you really follow this rule, that scum of clutter on the surface of life goes away. And that just makes everything much easier. It's also, it's easier to keep up than to catch up. And so one discouraging thing that happens when people create outer order is they'll, they'll like clean out their office. They'll do some like big sprints. And then two weeks later, it's like nothing ever changed. So part of it is the, is the challenge of establishing habits and practices so that just as part of your ordinary day, you can maintain so that you can keep up once you have caught up to keep it in that space so that you don't feel like you constantly have to dig your way out again. Cause that's discouraging and it feels like a waste of time and pretty soon it starts to feel pointless. And so you never do it at all. And then you just like get kind of surrounded by junk and that's no fun. 
So I've, I've definitely had the personal experience of cleaning something, even something small up and, and feeling almost a surge of energy and focus. And I, and I think many listeners have probably had that experience as well. And, and we've talked a little bit about that. Tell me a little bit more around, is there, is there science behind why this happens? Or what does is, what is the research of the data say around why this is such a powerful phenomenon? The research in this area is very interesting and spotty. And it seems like what people are mostly trying to do is to find what is the best way? What is the environment that makes people most creative? Are people more creative in a messy place or in a clean place? To me, this is completely misguided because people are so different. And what works for one person doesn't work for another. And so you could say like on balance, 51% of people are better off doing blah, blah. That doesn't give me any information. I want to know what works for me. And the only way we know that is by thinking about ourselves. And a great place to, if you want evidence of this, is a book called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. And I wish that it wasn't called Daily Rituals because it's not really about rituals. It's about habits. It's about when do people get up? When do they go to sleep? How much do they drink? Are they drinking coffee or vodka? Are they with a lot of other people? Are they working in solitude? And these are people who are tremendously high performers, scientists, painters, writers, choreographers, inventors. And what you see when you look at this, just this compendium, is that people vary dramatically. Some people work alone. Some people work in a crowded studio. Some people work from morning to night. Some people work a half an hour a day. Some people drink tons of coffee. Some people drink, you know, they're drinking liquor all day long. But what you realize with all these people is they have figured out what they need to do their best work and they get it. So if you need to sleep late, you figure out a way to sleep late. If you want to get up early, you get up early and you know yourself and you do as much as you can to create the environment in which you can thrive. And I think that the, the, the research really goes astray is trying to act like there's one best way. There just isn't one best way. I mean, and we know that from real life. Like you don't need to have undergraduates eating marshmallows to tell you that some people are morning people and some people are night people. Now, there's tremendous research showing that some people are morning people and some people are night people. But the idea that we're going to decide, okay, from 10 to 1 p.m. is the best time for people to work, it's just it just doesn't matter if on if like if in general that's true, like sort of statistically, because it's so individual in in its in how it turns out. You see this also with clutter. Some people really they want a they want bare counters, bare desks. I'm like this myself. But some people really thrive on piles. They feel like unexpected juxtapositions stimulate their creativity. They can find whatever they want immediately. They're not bothered by looking for things. That's not a problem for them. So for me to say, oh, a cluttered desk means a cluttered mind, you have to have a clean desk because that's what works for me or that's what some research shows, it doesn't matter because that doesn't work for this person. This person feels like their creativity is more inspired by this kind of environment. So I think really the, the question is, to, is self-knowledge. And now sometimes you can't have exactly the environment that you want because you have to coordinate with other people. You have to think about the environment they want, or you have to think about the schedule that is practical. So we don't always have, you know, max, like complete flexibility. But I think we have to start by thinking about, well, if I had, if I could do anything, what would be my ideal? And then work from there rather than saying, I need to fit myself into someone else's mold of like the best way, the right way, the most efficient way. Even if I know from experience, this doesn't work for me at all. That's a great point. And, and Daily Rituals is a fascinating book. I remember reading that several years ago, and it, it definitely opened my mind. And after reading it, I spent a long time thinking about how do I craft my sort of ideal day? 
and and work to build and schedule and structure my time so that I had meetings at certain times and productive time at certain times in a way that was aligned with my own biorhythms and energy levels and everything else. Yeah, because I think sometimes people are like, well, somebody's going to tell me what I should do and I should just do that. But it often it's just not a good fit because it just isn't what works for you. So yeah, I think, I think self-knowledge is really important because you might not be able to have your ideal day, but if you don't even know what your ideal day is, then you probably are definitely not going to get it. You know, your, your chances are much higher once you know what you're aiming for, what you would wish for if you could get it. Another great point, And you underscore something that's probably the most single recurrent theme on the entire podcast, which is this notion that self-knowledge really underpins anything. If you don't know what you want, if you don't know what you're capable of, if you don't know what you're striving towards, it's going to be really hard to get there. Well, absolutely. And it's funny, when I wrote The Happiness Project, I came up with my 12 personal commandments. And my first commandment and like my most important commandment is to be Gretchen. Now, everybody has to substitute their own name, obviously, but it's this idea of like, who am I? And you think, well, nothing could be easier than knowing who I am. I just hang out with myself all day long. But as you know, it's like, it's very easy to get distracted by the way we wish we were or the, the way we assume we ought to be or should be or what other people expect from us. And we lose connection with what is true about us. And I think it's one of the great challenges of our lives is to tr- really try to grapple with, you know, what is the truth about me? It's very hard to look directly in the mirror. In fact, I have a lot of questions that I ask myself and other people to say, Okay, you might not be able to get, you might not be able to see this directly. How can we indirectly shine a spotlight on something that you've overlooked? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and it's so hard sometimes to see your own habits or foibles or weaknesses with perfect clarity. And there's the classic example of having a friend or neighbor come to you with a problem and you immediately see, oh, you need to do this, this, and this. And yet if you have the same problem, suddenly you're mired in confusion and second guessing and and not knowing what you're supposed to be doing. No, exactly. And that's why one of the exercises they say is imagine that a friend came and told you this, like, oh, I did this terrible thing. It's like, oh, we've all done it. You know, you would be so you would think nothing of it if a friend did it. But for you, you're like consumed with both remorse and regret. Yeah, it, it, it's funny how we just have, it's just hard to think about ourselves in the same way. Another thing to do is to ask yourself uncomfortable questions. Like I love to ask people, whom do you envy? Envy is a very interesting emotion because it means that somebody has something that we wish we had. And it's a very, like people don't like to admit envy. It's not, it's not an attractive emotion. It's not, it's a very uncomfortable emotion, but it's very revealing because if you're like, I envy that person's travel. I envy that person's side hustle. I envy that person's time spent on music. Well, then that tells you that they have something that you wish you had for yourself. And then somebody was like, oh, but couldn't you just say this is admiration? Because they wanted it, they didn't want to frame it in a negative way. I'm like, you have to sort of embrace the negative aspect to it. Because if you admire something, I might admire that somebody spends a lot of time in exotic travels, but I don't want to do exotic travels. I admire it. I don't want it for myself. Envy tells you something about yourself that maybe you don't always want to acknowledge or that you've been ignoring. What a great framework and excellent journal question to to put to yourself and spend 10 or 15 minutes thinking about what do you envy and start to understand that if nothing else can start to give you some clarity about how do you want to be shaping your activities and desires and and goals towards the things that the things that you ultimately want. This happened to me because when I was cl- I was clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, I was a lawyer, I was working as a lawyer. 
And I was reading the the my law school alumni magazine, you know, where it has the reports of what everybody in your class, all the different classes are doing. And what I noticed is that when I read about people who had very, very interesting legal jobs, I had kind of a sense of mild interest. And when I read about people who had interesting writing jobs, I felt completely consumed with envy. And I thought, Ooh, this is telling me something about myself because I don't want any of these jobs that I'm reading about in law. And I almost can't even, I can almost barely even stand to read about the people who have writing jobs because it just upsets me so much. And I was like, okay, well, there's information there. (laughs) Uncomfortable information, but useful information. I feel like most useful things are often involve some form or fashion of discomfort. Especially when it comes to self-knowledge, because I think a lot of times we don't want to admit what's true for ourselves. It's interesting because there's this tension within self-knowledge, because on the one hand, we want to accept ourselves and, and the true nature of our temperament and our interests and our values and acknowledge what is true about ourselves. But we also want to expect more from ourselves. So we want to go outside of our comfort zone. We don't want to be complacent. We want to be striving. And a lot of times that means doing things that make us feel uncomfortable or angry or frustrated or we feel stupid. And so on the one hand, to accept yourself and on the other hand, to expect more from yourself, like only you know the difference. Only you can say, is this something that you should accept about yourself? This is just something that's not right for you. Or is this something where you're like, you know what? I really can do this. Like public speaking, you know, is this something that you're going to you want to add or is this something where you're like, you know what? This is just not my thing. Or, you know, bungee jumping. It's like for some people, they're like, I should really do it. I'm going to feel great if I go bungee jumping. I'll be so happy I did it. And then there are people like me where I'm like, you know what? That's one thing I'm just going to let go. I don't need to have that. You know, be Gretchen. Bungee jumping is not it's not for me. How do you think about or what are some useful tools or heuristics you found for weighing that balance between self-acceptance and and high expectations? That, that's something that personally I'm very interested in. I feel like I spend a lot of time thinking about. You know, I don't think there's an easy solution. And I've spent a ton, I'm sure, as you say, you spent a lot of time thinking about it too. There's kind of no easy solution. I think it's just, I think it's just rigorous and relentless self-examination. You know, you can ask your, one, one thing that I do feel is helpful in sort of decision-making. This is when you're trying to decide, should I ask this of myself or not? A very helpful question is to think, choose the bigger life. Often when things are described as the bigger life, it gives you a certain element of clarity of what in your mind would be a a bigger life. And here's just a very mundane example. So everybody in my family really wanted to get a dog and I kind of didn't want to get a dog. I was like, it's going to be a big hassle. There's all this work. It's inconvenient. We're going to have a dog. This dog is going to live with us for longer than our own daughters live with us. Probably. I was just like the pros and the cons were very, very heavily weighted for me. And I knew all the happiness research that pets make people happier. Dogs make people happier and healthier. Like, there's a lot of reasons to do it. A lot of reasons that for me, it was on balance. And then I thought, choose the bigger life. Now, the interesting thing about the question is for some people, the bigger life could be not getting a dog because they'd be like, if I don't get a dog, I'll have this money to spend on other things that are important to me. I'll have more freedom to do things that are important to me. This is, this is going to lock me into a set of responsibilities that in the end is going to be very confining. And for me, the bigger life is not to have the dog. But for me, it was instantly clear that in our situation, the bigger life was the life with the dog. And that allowed me to like, all of a sudden I was walking away from my pros and cons list and the answer was very clear. And I feel like with accept yourself and expect more from yourself, sometimes you can say like, is this the bigger life? Like I remember when I started the happier podcast with my sister, I called her and I said, this could be a huge flop in public. Like I'm just saying you need to be prepared that this is going to go nowhere. It's going to just be a giant failure. 
and everyone's going to, anyone who looks is going to see it. And she's like, totally, 100%, I'm in. Let's just like, let's just do it. That's the bigger life, you know? And, and, and so sometimes choosing the bigger life makes you see that it is worth the anxiety and the insecurity and the frustration and all the negative feelings that can come with when we try to push ourselves out of what is comfortable. Because if it represents the bigger life, then that really can help shed a light on what's important to us. Because if it doesn't represent the bigger life, then maybe it isn't something that we want to do. There's a lot, there's, everything has an opportunity cost. To do this is not to do that. So maybe this isn't the right thing. If it's not the bigger life, maybe, maybe in a week you'll discover something else and you'll have the opportunity and the time and the bandwidth to think about something else because you're not getting distracted by somebody else's idea of what you should do. Because I think sometimes that's, that's a problem is people say, oh, you should do this, you should do that. And you're like, okay, I will. And it's like, should you do that? Maybe you should, but maybe you should be doing something completely different. It's, it's a struggle. It's a, it's a constant balance. That's a very useful framework. And I think the dog example is such a, a perfect way to illustrate it because it shows you that with the exact same choice, getting a pet, the bigger life can be completely opposite things for different people. And yet at the same time, that question is such a powerful forcing function to really think about how do you envision your your best life? And is this choice or decision putting you on a path towards those kinds of activities and things and experiences? Or is it moving you away from it? Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. <laughs> we've we've diverged dramatically from 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 the concept of order, <laughs> but I think it was a worthwhile exploration. All these subjects are so interrelated. I mean, there's happiness, there's habits, there's order, there's the four tendencies, which is my personality framework. I mean, what I love about this subject, which I would say is all human nature. I would say that is that's what links all these things and unifies them is this this question of human nature. Who are we? Why do we do what we do? And how can we change if we want to change? But yeah, you can kind of, you can start in one place and end up someplace else very, you know, but it all feels like it's part of a, of a large unifying concept. And you bring up another really good point, which is essentially that actually two really good points. One is the essential notion that all reality is, is fundamentally interconnected. And, and whether you're talking about at a hard sciences level or, or even in the domains of, of human activity, whether it's business, whether it's sport, anything that you're looking at, psychology often underpins all of those different things. And even the, the broader academic disciplines exist maybe within the academy as silos, but actually they're all describing pieces of reality. And to be true, they all have to reflect and connect and, and, and incorporate the truths from all of the other disciplines. Well, it's fascinating that you say that because one of the things that I study most intensely is the great essayists from the past, like Montaigne, Samuel Johnson, William Hazlitt, Thoreau, because I feel that, you know, they're not at William James even, you know, because William James is kind of scientific, but not totally scientific. If you read something like Varieties of Religious Experience, like, I think that sometimes this kind of thought to me reveals more about human nature, even than the academic research. I love the academic research. I read it constantly, but because of the way that science is done, it's very, very narrow. You know, it's looking at one thing. We have to define all the terms the same way we're looking, you know, and you can get distortions and you can also get that people look at things that they can study and they kind of miss, how, as you say, how things might connect. And so I often find that I will read something in Samuel Johnson and he will sum up in a single paragraph 
something that I'm like, I can think of five research papers that are trying to tackle one little bit of something that he's making an observation about. And yet he's able to kind of make a grand, just kind of based on nothing. I'm Samuel Johnson and I'm here to just tell you what I think. And I'm like, but his, his insights are more profound. I feel like I've learned more about myself from reading this thing from, you know, the yeah, the 1700s than reading the most up-to-date research. So I think that there's room for both things. I think there's absolutely the research is super important, but then I also think there are there are great thinkers who have these insights that are very worth pondering. I'm sure that the people doing the research often study folks to see what they're saying or how they approach these questions from from this very different perspective. There's a lot of ways to try to get insight into human nature. And for me, that is one of the most powerful sources of, of insight. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire. 
because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And that underscores the essential idea that it's it's so important to have a multidisciplinary perspective on anything that you're looking at. Whether it's any single thing you're trying to study or understand, you have to bring in knowledge from all kinds of diverse fields to truly see the big picture and truly see and get a glimpse of the ultimate reality. Well, it's interesting on exactly that point. I am a huge fan of the work of Gary Tobbs, who wrote uh, The Case Against Sugar and Why We Get Fat, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And I read the book Why We Get Fat, and like overnight, I changed everything about the way I eat. I mean, except for leafy green vegetables and chicken, I basically changed everything in the way I ate, and it had like the most dramatic positive consequences for me. I was just completely convinced by his arguments, which was all about insulin function, essentially. And then my father did the same thing. Like, I was like, oh, my life was completely changed by this book. So then off my father goes, and he did it too, and he had even more dramatic good results. And so Gary Tobbs, he's so convincing in his marshalling of arguments. But one of the points that he makes in his area, which is about, you know, basically metabolism, nutrition, hormones, all this, the bot, you know, all that stuff is that the specialists are so siloed that a lot of times they don't understand like the true consequences of certain things they've discovered, how they might have relevance to someone who's looking at a very different problem. And so you sort of need someone who can step back and be like, okay, let's try to put all these pieces together and to think about the big system that's at work. You need to have all the little itty bitty systems and information about what's happening in these narrow areas. But if you don't try to put them together, you often will miss like a really important point because you're not standing far enough back, you know, it's the forest for the trees problem, especially when systems that are very interrelated, because you only focus on one thing, you may come to the wrong conclusion, because you don't understand how it's actually working in a larger system that might have a very different consequence than the one that you anticipate. You know, that's one of the the guiding principles behind why we started Science of Success and why I'm constantly for long-time listeners have heard me rattle on about the importance of mental models again and again, because incorporating all of these different disciplines and all this knowledge gives you such a, a much richer perspective on anything you're trying to tackle or understand or achieve. For me, I think reading is how I try to do that. It's just constantly reading because I feel like with reading, it's, it's a good... I just feel like I'm often forced to think through something from a different perspective or to be confronted with people who argue things that I don't agree with or who are telling stories about characters who have thoughts or impulses that I would completely disagree with or can't understand. And that and going through that is a constant way of testing my own thoughts and like, have, have I gotten stuck in one way of thinking or am I assuming that I'm right when it's really, this is one of the problems that I found for myself as I've gotten deeper and deeper. Often I would think, well, I'm right instead of saying, this is what's true for me. And, and I really now have a much greater appreciation of how pe uh, people have vastly different perspectives on the world. Like you think, oh, the world, is, this is what I used to think. The world is the world. 
we see what we see. Like you can reframe if you want, but whatever the facts are the facts. No, my gosh, people have vastly different understandings of what's happening, what's right and wrong, what's preferable, what's valuable, who's being, even things like who's being polite. Well, a great way to see this play out is if I, Every time I go to someone's office, I always make a beeline for the kitchen and look at all the signs that are posted in the office kitchen. Because if you want to see the variety of human nature, you look at what people have to say about what you should do with your dirty dishes. Because people have really, really different philosophies about what the right behavior is. And they absolutely do not understand why anybody would disagree with them. And they think it's just barbaric that anyone is deviating from what they think is right. And it's not that they're wrong. It's just like, Actually, people have very different ideas about how what's right to do in an office kitchen. And unless you like sit down and have a two hour conversation about it, you don't know. You just see a lot of, you know, kind of passive aggressive signs posted posted on the sink because people people have different views. They really see the world in different ways. Dishes is a great microcosm to understand how all of there's 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 a I mean, as you said, you could spend hours and hours unpacking the the histories and the psychological biases and the upbringings and everything that leads to this one little eruption of a clash over how to handle a dirty dish when there's an entire worldview that underpins that. No. And the thing is, people don't they just think if you don't do what I think is right, you're either dumb or you're completely inconsiderate. And they don't understand, like, and I can even go through this because I've talked to so many people about it, like the different worldviews. Like you say, it's it's not that they are like, oh, ha, 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 you're the sucker. They have a view about how to do this right. And, you know, who's to say who's right or who's wrong? This is why, in my view, it should be someone's job. Anything that people are like, people should just pitch in. I'm like, people are going to have very different views about what is right and how to do it and how often and who should do what and what are people's proper roles and contributions, blah, 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 blah. This can go on forever. Have it be someone's job. Have it be someone's job. Have them get paid for it. Have them get recognized for it. And if you're like, oh, it's someone's job to put away the coffee cups. Do I feel like being nice to this person and doing it myself? Maybe I do. But it's not, but no one's volunteering to do this. And if I don't do it, it's not like, I mean, then you just, I just think people should, I think it should be a job. Everything, you know, if you, if you want it to be done, have it be a job. You brought up another really good point a moment ago as well, which is this idea that there's a huge difference between the, the seemingly truth oriented or objective statement, I'm right. And this is what's right for me. And that applies to what we're just talking about in terms of even small situations of social norms, et cetera. But it comes all the way back to what we were talking about earlier as well with constructing your own daily rituals and habits and routines and understanding that in some cases, it's not necessarily there's one truth, but rather it's about figuring out what is true for you. Well, and one way this comes up very often is morning people and night people. This is a real thing. It's largely genetically determined and also a function of age. There's an amazing book called Internal Time by Ronenberg which is absolutely fascinating on the subject of chronotypes. And, but I, you know, people, I remember a friend of mine said to me, you know, my resolution for this year is I'm going to get up early and go running before work every day. And I was like, no, you're not. Cause I know you and you're a night person and you're at your least productive and efficient and creative first thing in the day. And there, yes, there's research. I mean, if you wanted to like show me pieces of paper that say the best thing to do, why this is a good, efficient, smart thing to do, I can show you all the research in the world about why you should do before you go to work. But I'm just here to say, you're not going to do that. Because you're a night person. And so instead of setting yourself up for failure and frustration, set yourself up for success. Exercise at lunch. Exercise at four o'clock in the afternoon. Because 
the fact that it makes sense on paper or it might be more convenient. It's like it does, you've just got to work, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset about yourself and thinking that, oh, it's more efficient to do that. It's like, yeah, except that it doesn't get done at all. How efficient is that? Not. And so I think that making people think that there's one right way or best way often becomes a hurdle because if that way doesn't work for them, they just keep thinking, well, I need to just work on that till I can make it happen. I mean, I was giving a talk and some guy was saying, oh, for years and years and years, I tried to be a morning person, but finally I just, you know, I just buckled down and I did it. And by sheer self-will, I turned myself into a morning person. I was like, yeah, how old are you? You're 55 years old. You're experiencing the morning person stuff that happens with age. Like if you were 28 years old, I assure you, this would not, you would not be saying this. And he's like, you're right. I wouldn't have at 28. I couldn't have done this. I'm like, right. I mean, it's not that it's not a good idea. It's just that it's not practical because it's not going to work at all for some people. So I'm always thinking there's so many ways for us to achieve our aims. If one way doesn't work for you, then go on to something else. Experiment, learn. If something doesn't work, you've learned something about yourself. That's valuable too. One thing that works for a lot of people is don't break the chain. Some people love that. If that works for you, that's great. It's a very powerful strategy. If don't break the chain makes you feel choked and trapped, okay, then you've learned that about yourself. You don't, you're not going to use don't break the chain. There's a million other ways to achieve a name. What is don't break the chain? I've never heard of that. Oh, don't break the chain is just like you're going to keep track of like how often you've exercised or how often you've done meditation or whatever, how often you've you know eaten less than 50 grams of carbs in a day, and you're just going to check it off. And as you, you're going to build up a chain of, you know, like the X marks the spot on your calendar and the chain is the chain of successes. And for many people, this is very, very compelling. Like they'll get up to like 465 and, you know, X is on their chain and then like they get, they get the flu or whatever. But for some people, they really love that. But then some people don't like that, you know? So it's like, okay, fine. There's no, this, this is not like the best tool. It might have worked really well for me. I might say this is the best tool, but it's not a tool that's universally useful. To-do lists. You know, in my personality framework, the four tendencies, I mean, there's a, a sizable number of people who cannot use to-do lists. Fine. You know, but they constantly beat themselves up because they're like every grown-up in the world uses to-do lists. And I'm like, no, they don't. A lot of people don't like to-do lists. There's other ways to achieve your aims. If this is a tool that doesn't work for you, just move on. Like, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to change. You just need to find a tool that fits you because everybody's always trying to cram themselves into some model. But that model it's just, it's not, you know, it's very, there are very, very few universal things. I'm constantly trying to figure out what's universal. Just about nothing is universal. I wrote a book, Happier at Home. Some people don't even have the idea of home. Not many people. Most people have some idea of home, but some people really don't, you know, and that's pretty, you think, well, that's got to be pretty universal. Yeah. So many, so many ways we could, we could explore into that. I'll throw a couple, obviously all the links we've talked about today. I also throw a couple previous episodes we have. We, we interviewed Daniel Pink and he talks all about like the different time chronotypes and everything. We'll throw that in the show notes. We have a couple other episodes around habits and stuff for listeners who want to dig in more. But I think you brought a really good point up, which is the, the importance of adherence to anything that you're doing. And a habit that you actually do is, even if it's not the optimal strategy, is 100 times more valuable than a habit that's the optimal strategy that you do once or twice and then stop doing completely. Yeah, there's a great line from Voltaire, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that's very important to remember. You know, the thing that you do is much more valuable than, than the, the, the perfect thing you never, that you don't do. Yeah, it's the whole don't get it perfect, get it going. I mean, it's, it is very, very important to remember. So... 
for listeners who want to concretely implement or apply some of the ideas and strategies that we've talked about today, what would be a couple or, or one particular action item or action step for them to start implementing either some of the ways to create order in their lives or to, to implement some of the other themes we've talked about? Um, well, when it comes to outer order, I think a very valuable question, because one of the first things is like, how do you decide what to keep and what to either discard or recycle or donate or whatever, is do you need it? Do you use it? Do you love it? Because if you don't need it, use it or love it, then you probably don't need it. You know, that's like the cord to the appliance from nowhere. If you don't need it, use it or love it, that is, that's, that's something that's really failed the test and probably needs to go. Another thing to remember is don't get organized. People are often like, my first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to get organized. But if you get rid of everything you don't need, don't use, don't love, you may not need to get organized. You may not need to run out and buy a filing cabinet if you realize that you don't need to keep any of that paperwork. I was just talking to a guy the other day and he realized he went through all his paperwork and he realized a huge portion of it, strangely enough, was pet insurance. Paperwork and paperwork and paperwork related to his pet insurance, and he realized it's all online. He could just get rid of all of it. It's not like it had; it didn't have to be organized. So don't get organized. Get rid of everything you don't want, and then you may not need to get organized at all. Another idea that works for a lot of people is the one-minute rule: anything that you can do in less than a minute, do without delay. You know, because this gets rid of those little tasks. And then often when those little tasks are cleared out, the big tasks seem easier and they also stand out more. So it's sort of like, oh, now, you know, now that I've gotten rid of all this little stuff, I see that I do have this one big pile. Maybe just I'll just, you know, do a couple things every time I walk by the pile. And then, you know, pretty soon, even the, mo the thing that looks like the biggest mess, if you really just tackle it little by little, usually it's pretty, it's, it's something that, you know, you can, you can get under control once you really are making a consistent effort to tackle it. With the example of the pet insurance, that's that's definitely something I've discovered. I had an epiphany probably three or four years ago. I realized all these manuals and instruction booklets and everything that I've that I've been keeping for all my electronics and everything. You just Google what to do, and it's all online. And you can even find the actual manual online. But you're probably better off just finding a three minute YouTube video where someone shows you exactly how to do it. And yet, I was keeping stacks and stacks and stacks of all these things, and and I threw them all away. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And, you know, so, and then it's like, or you keep travel information, but travel information gets outdated so quickly. A lot of research, it's like, in, you know, research just goes stale unless, unless, you know, you really want to push yourself not to hang on to those things. Or like people like rip out pictures of like, oh, this is, I love the way this looks. Or if someday I'm going to do my dream kitchen, I'm like, look, five years from now, when you move and you're going to renovate your kitchen, you're not going to be looking back at this. I mean, it's just not realistic. Sometimes people like to just rip things out or hold on to things just, I think, almost as a way of just kind of claiming it. If you want to do that, that's fine. Or, you know, bookmarking it, but then let it go. It's kind of served its purpose. So I think really looking at that kind of clutter. I mean, one thing to do is to think about how technology creates a, a kind of clutter that can we can get rid of. So like, if you only take pictures and videos on your phone, do you need a camera and a video camera and a charging cable and all that stuff? Probably not. Do you need a scanner? Do you need a fax machine? Do you need a photocopier? Maybe not. You know, do you need a compass. Does anybody have a compass? I bet some people have a compass. You don't need a compass. You know, there's certain kinds of things that we just don't need any alarm clock. Do you ever use an alarm clock? Maybe you do. A lot of people say you should use an alarm clock instead of your phone and keep your phone out of your room. Maybe you do that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just use your phone. In which case, like, why do you have an alarm clock in every room? Sometimes like these, th they seem useful and they're there. And so we don't realize like, actually, I don't, I don't even ever, I haven't used this thing in like three, four years. 
And getting rid of it will just open up that space in our lives. A lot of times, and I can almost hear listeners asking me this question because I get questions like this very frequently in my email. But people, you know, this what we talked about today, this idea that so many things are very context dependent and it might work in one context, it might not work in another context. It might be right for you. It might be completely wrong for you can create almost a analysis paralysis. What prescription would you give to somebody who's who's listening, who now feels even more lost or confused? How can they see through the haze or start to get clarity around figuring out what's going to actually work for them? I would just say, do you need it? Do you use it? Do you love it? Just everything that you're that is in your your area, just say that. Because that's very clear. I mean, the pet insurance, do you need it? No. Do you use it? No. You don't need it because it's online. Do you use it? No, I never look back on it. Do you love it? Certainly not. Okay, get rid of it. I think that's very clarifying. You know, one one famous question is Marie Kondo spark joy. I think that that's a much tougher question because I'm like, ah, it doesn't spark joy except that it's useful to me. And I guess everything that's useful kind of sparks joy. But then that feels like it's not really being true to what the idea of sparking joy is. So then I get in kind of caught in this tangle of like, what is joy anyway? And, you know, is, is, workman, is workmanship enough? To, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do I use it? Do I need it? Do I love it? Because there's a lot of things I don't even really like, but I use them all the time. So it's like, yeah, I use it. So I think that's a very, I think that is a question that can eliminate a lot of decision fatigue. So, you know, and like with clothes, people often are like, ah, I could wear it. I should wear it. I would wear it. Do you wear it? Do you, do you use it? Do you need it? Do you love it? No. Because sometimes we have things that are very useful, even though we don't use them very often. This is why I don't like the one year test. Because sometimes people are like, if you haven't used it in a year, get rid of it. But what about like, Heavy, heavy ski pants. Like I don't even ski, but I have ski pants because I'm a super cold person. And when it's very, very cold in New York City, when I live, I just wear ski pants all day. Some years it's not that cold and I don't, I don't even use the ski pants. But then the day comes and I'm like, I'm going to get out the ski pants. And so I use them and I do, you know, when the need arises, I do need them. Even if I maybe two years would go by when I don't need them. So I think that's, I think that is the helpful test. And just adding a, a tiny bit onto that to extrapolate this idea out beyond even creating order to rituals and habits more broadly and trying to figure out whether they work for you, whether they're right for you. You brought up a a great point earlier as well, which is this idea of experimentation and how useful that can be for figuring out which habits and strategies are going to work best for you and and are going to have the highest adherence rate for you. What are you going to actually do? Yeah, no, that's a huge theme in the book Better Than Before, because obviously that's the million dollar question. It's not so much what should you do, but like, how can you get yourself to stick to the things that you want to do? A really helpful question in this regard is, when have you succeeded in the past? Because a lot of times people are failing at something now, but they have succeeded in the past, but they're ignoring the information that maybe would help them move forward. So like, if I said to my friend, was there a time when you exercised in the past? He's like, yeah, in college, I would always go, I would go for a run right before dinner. And I, I did that very consistently. It's like, okay, so what are we learning from that? Are we learning that you need to go running before you eat? Do we need to, are we learning that you need to run with a friend? Are we learning that you need to run in the afternoon? I would say, I think it's the time of day. I think that you're more, I think your adherence goes up when it's later in the day because of, because that's when you have higher energy. But maybe that's not it. You know, sometimes people are like, I need to, you know, I thought it was, I thought the class was because I knew I was paying, but it turned out it wasn't the paying. It was 
seeing a friend or it turned out it wasn't seeing a friend. It was knowing that if I didn't come to the class, somebody else wasn't able to take my slot and my feeling of, of guilt about taking a, a slot from someone else who would have otherwise been able to go to a class. That's what made me go. So understanding like why it sometimes you succeed and other, and, and other times not often can really guide your experimentation because you'll sort of see, well, what are those factors that are coming into play? And if you've never succeeded, you've never done it, maybe, maybe you've never tried to do it, just to say, I'll try it this way. If this doesn't work after a good solid try, try it at a different time of day, or I'll try it, you know, ask around, what do other people, what's worked for other people? If something sounds appealing to you, you know, maybe it's hard for you to exercise unless you're training for the marathon or training for a big run. Okay, that's a thing that works. Maybe I hate that. I would never do that. I don't like that idea. I don't like games. Competition would make something less less fun for me, but maybe for you, a pickup basketball game every week would be much more likely to keep you exercising. And then once you do it once a week, you're like, hey, I could do this twice a week. And then, hey, maybe I want to go running another night because it's going to help my my game. Once you start, you can start building on it. But you're absolutely right. Experimentation is crucial. I just, you know, sometimes people get discouraged. They're like, there's one way to do this. I can't do it that way. What's wrong with me? Instead of saying, okay, that's a data point. Let's move on to the next opportunity. What, what else can I try? If you look around, you'll see there's a lot of ways to achieve aims. There's a lot of ways to get done whatever you want to get done. So just uh, figure out what works for you. Gretchen, where can listeners find you and your all of your work online? So I have a site, GretchenRubin.com, and there's it's a huge amount of information there. I post frequently about my adventures and happiness and good habits and human nature. There's also tremendous resources, all kinds of discussion guides and one pagers. There's excerpts and audio clips of my books. If you're thinking, oh, I want to see if this book is for me, you can read free or listen free there. And just, just a ton of, there's a quiz. If We briefly mentioned the four tendencies framework. If you want to know if you're an upholder, questioner, obliger, or rebel, which is very relevant to this, you can take the free quiz there. I think 2 million people have taken that quiz now. And then I also have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which I do every week with my sister Elizabeth, where we talk about how to be happier. And so we talk about a lot of these ideas, but very very practical ways. Like when our first segment is always try this at home. It's always a suggestion of a concrete idea that you can try at home is just part of your ordinary routine. Happiness hacks, like the little the little hacks that we all find from time to time that can boost our happiness. So it's it's really fun and, and very, very concrete. So and then I'm on social media everywhere under the handle Gretchen Rubin. And I love to connect with readers and listeners and viewers. So if you have thoughts or insights or questions or observations, hit me up. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom. Been a great conversation. I so appreciate it. I feel like we could talk all day. We're interested in so many of the same things. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. 
Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.